Hello, welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogan and Dan Usher, just two techies separated by some show notes, talking cloud, the answer, and technology. I'm a robot voice, and this is episode 25, recorded on July 29, 2015. Scott, you're always right, except when you're wrong. Which is enough. In this case, you're right. Thanks. I'm really good at the internet. Uh, well, you know. So, uh, what do we got going on this week, man? Stuff. Stuff. Yep. We got the air conditioner kicking on in the background. That's always good. Yeah, a little, little warm outside. Well, you know, it's almost felt like it was 100. Humidity's kicking up. I almost mm. broke a sweat today. Good. I came this close. That close? Almost yep. the Australian moist? Yep. Almost. Okay. Um... So, a week has gone by, and I can't say I've heard much about Send. Have you? What? Very good. So, Microsoft's Send uh, app is going just as well as the Yammer Now app went. Well, it was from the Garage team. You're not even supposed to know it's out there. It's kind of like Require.js in Office 365. You're not supposed to know it's there because the engineering team's putting it out in production tenants. Hmm. So that's, a, that's another interesting piece of follow-up. Uh, changes with regard to Office 365 that have occurred recently. Um, so Mark Anderson had a nice blog post out there about uh, the required JS component that apparently is going out into production. Uh, which, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. if Do you have a tenant out there that has uh, first release not turned on? No. I don't. All of my first release turned on. Every single one. Yeah, so I guess, you know, for those of us with first release, we're finding this. Uh, I'd be curious, anybody out there of the three listeners, uh, Tim Farrow, John Backtool, and Jason Himmelstein, this means you, uh, if you happen to see the required JS files sitting out there in your friendly neighborhood Office 365 tenant that doesn't have first release turned on, please let us know, and we'll send you a joyous sticker yeah, I, I'm, I'm more like that Mark wrote this post and Jeremy Thake, one of the uh, marketing managers, uh, I think he's a marketing manager, right? Something like that. Uh, he came out and he had a comment on the blog post and it says, we are currently doing this as an experiment in SharePoint Online for one of our engineering teams. Neat. Awesome. Kind of like the uh, Yammer experiment of turning off the, or changing the name for all networks. Yeah. A-B testing at its best. A-B testing on the fly. You know, they're, they're, they're just trying to build MVPs all the time. Uh, minimum viable products. Yeah, that's the buzzword within the uh, Office 365 group these days. Mm. Well, uh, so that's one thing that changed. The other thing that changed recently was our good friend uh, Yammer got some love, if we want to call it that. Yammer love, huh? Well, so I guess, uh, what was it, a year ago, they mentioned uh, coming soon to a tenant near you, you could have uh, Yammer conversations around documents stored in your Office 365 tenant. Oh, oh, you're talking about the feature that they took away, not the one that they added. Well, I think it was two months ago they said, hey, it's rolling out to all the production tenants now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that would be the one. So... Uh, You're talking about the document conversations feature, which rolled on the roadmap to a canceled state, 
earlier this week and magically got shut off. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why that was, and I haven't really seen any uh, terms out there as to why. Why they shut it off? Usually they shut things off because people aren't using them. But, you know, being, again, that they rolled it out into production and everything else and then took it away, eh, not leaving great taste in some people's mouths who were um, looking to leverage that service, right? There, there were quite a few comments off in the Yammer IT Pro networks or the Office 365 networks uh, where people had been championing this functionality within their organizations and there was one really disheartening story from a customer who said, uh, you know, we've been working to roll this out, and I just talked to my manager this morning about it, and now it's gone. Thanks. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a pain point. Uh, I, I personally, the functionality kind of reminded me of other things that were kind of painful to use, like, uh, uh, what was that thing... Office on demand that they took away and said use other something else. Um, so the the document discussions conversations. Uh, the thing that always just kind of made me laugh is most people didn't realize that you also needed a tag like where it needed to be targeted. Like, hey, we're having a conversation about this document and it's related to X Y Z part of the organization. Uh, instead, it just automatically went to all company by default. So that was always entertaining when people ask the question, what's this document? Why is it showing up in this conversation feed? Blah, 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 blah. But again, that goes back to, hey, we need to just train all of our Yammer users, right? Mm, sure. Okay. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to train them when things come and go and disappear and appear and buttons move and, and all those good, wonderful things that the Yammer team does. You know, it's interesting they remove the document conversations piece uh, but that really only applied to just that, documents. It didn't apply to things like Office 365 video, which is still going to have Yammer conversations. Glorious. Yep. So if you're looking for that functionality, you can go comment around videos, but not documents. Well, I will, uh, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. Uh, in other news, some other quick updates to Office 365 that seemed pseudo-interesting. Uh, one of them that is now rolling out is custom tiles. So the custom tile feature will provide the capability for an Office 365 tenant admin to quickly create an app tile from any public website, intranet, or team site and push it to the My Apps page of all users within the tenant. Users that will then be able to add this app to their app launcher for quick access to a top site for their organization. Woohoo! Kind of cool. Uh, so if you've been playing this game at home, uh, if you had a custom app that you built internally to your organization or whatever you're using SharePoint Online for, or really Office 365 in general, and you created that custom app, uh, people could go at it like one-off, but there was no good way to push it organization-wide. So this apparently will allow you to do that organization-wide, and it's quote-unquote rolling out, so we'll see. It's uh, kind of neat. Hopefully comes to good use for some organizations. Yeah, so to be fair, you've been able to push your own custom applications into the app launcher the whole time. You just had to have the apps in Azure Active Directory. Right. Now you don't necessarily have to have them in Azure Active Directory. Well, I wonder, do those write back to Azure Active Directory? 
and create a definition over there. Don't Since so. technically that's the source of truth for like the SaaS, like the My Apps portal, and all those other fun little things. Actually, you know what? It probably does. It should if it's going to work the same. But sadly, sadly, unlike most things, well, actually not most things. Uh, it does not have a more info bit, so I guess we'll just have to wait for a news article and support.office.com to pop up. I guess so. You know, it'd be nice if somebody put it in the show notes. Mm, yay, show notes. Uh, if you're looking for the Office Roadmap, if you just go to office.com forward slash roadmap, or if you like the long URL, you can go to success.office.com forward slash en-us or the locality of your country forward slash roadmap. Um, so if you are in Great Britain, it would be en-gb instead of en-us. But, uh, Scott, you bring up a good thing about show notes. We've been kind of lax on mentioning them. If you're looking for the show notes, you can find them over at pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery zero two... Which episode is this? Five? Twenty-five. Oh, my gosh. Zero two five. So, <clears throat> it's kind of the pattern we follow. Uh, if you're looking for a particular episode, just put in uh, those three digits for that episode, and you will find it mysteriously out on the beautiful website, brewery.fm. Uh, you can also find us on the Twitter. You can find us out on Facebook. You can find us on email, info at brewery.fm. Write us a note. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you would like to leave us some feedback on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, you can find that link inside the show notes. Again, pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery 025. Just like going and getting a nice uh, beverage, this too will cool your thoughts about technology. Man, you thought really hard about that one. Uh, you know. Um, so outside of that, looking through the roadmap and the items recently changed, nothing really sticks out like a sore thumb except for that document conversations for OneDrive for Business and SharePoint Online. Uh, I swear there was an article recently that I read that talked about uh, some of the new capabilities coming to device management uh, with OneDrive, but... Yeah, we talked about this like two episodes ago. Did we? Yep. Was I imbibing? Mm, you might have been. Mm. And it was like a month ago, so mm. that's why you can't find it. But you could go back and look at the show notes. I could. So I'd Or you could put the things that you're talking about this week in the show notes, so I knew what you were talking about. Well, you know, I like to hop around sometimes. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, that MDM stuff, Office 365, seems to be popping up more and more. Uh, who knows? Maybe there'll be some cool stuff coming in the future for more OneDrive goodness. Maybe. I do know that when I upgraded to Windows 10 today, yep. Windows 10 day, uh, you remember how when you upgraded to 10.240, how it wiped all your settings and basically took you through the entire setup process again? Uh, it did that in every uh, FBI impressive install I did the whole way through. I'm sorry to hear that. Didn't do that to me. Uh, so in much the same way, when I went in and clicked on good old, uh, upgrade, um, step one, make sure you have a monitor unless you have a windows, uh, answers file, but all right. All right. So, so let's explain the situation because I looked at you like you were a two headed snake when you said this. I was a two headed snake. So you were upgrading a headless machine that did not have a monitor or a KVM switch hooked up to it. And somehow you magically expected that it would upgrade itself and you would not have to click a button. So right? does, does that, hold on, does that set the stage properly? That sets the stage. And actually, that's the exact same thing that happened when I went from Windows 8 to Windows 8.1. So you've learned nothing. Basically. I hoped. Um, but 
upon doing that upgrade, asked to go through the settings again. Uh, oddly, the Logitech Nano receiver needed to be plugged, uh, replugged for it to pick up the device. Um, and likewise, the uh, what else? The other device that I had plugged in the back it needed to be plugged back in for it to actually pick it up again. Um, oddly, though, the OneDrive consumer app decided to let me know that it was going to download everything instead of using the selective sync that I had already prescribed to it when it was a Windows 8.1 box. So, Welcome to the new OneDrive. Yep. Have, um, have fun. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I guess it was a week ago, I think we mentioned this, about OneDrive. Um, there is a new cap- cool capability that you can limit file sync to domain join machines. That's for the OneDrive for business, not OneDrive for consumer. Yep, we did talk about that one. Yeah, so pretty you, cool. You, you just need a couple GUIDs here and there, and yeah. you know, things kind of magically can happen once you file that off. I, I like that they have a... If you look in the uh, the blogs.office.com article, the PowerShell commandlet syntax you use, they have set-ascii-character-enable-domain-guids and a long string. But it's kind of funny that instead of having the actual, like, word of what it's supposed to be. They have a question mark, ASCII symbol. Yep. Yeah, pretty awesome. I'm going to try and cut and paste that one and see if it works. Yep, it's perfect guidance. You know it. <laughs> so, get back on the rails. Uh, you told me I was not allowed to talk about Visual Studio 2015 last week, and we shall henceforth continue pressing past it. Excellent, it because now it's out and people know about it. Yep. They all have it. Um, you know, I, I will throw out one thing there. So we ran into this, uh, it kind of popped up on some of our uh, internal forums over the week, and it might have popped up for some of your stuff at work as well. Um, so Visual Studio 2015, of course, brings along the uh, latest and greatest non-beta build of the .NET Framework. Mm-hmm. So .NET Framework 4.6, and... We had a couple of folks that apparently were uh, laying down some new developer boxes by hand for some reason. You know, they didn't like our automated builds or whatever. And they were installing Visual Studio first before SharePoint. And the SharePoint uh, product installer, the prereq installer, when it goes out and looks for a couple things, uh, SharePoint actually in the prereq installer looks for the .NET Framework version 4.5. And it will not install. It will air out and say, um, you don't have the proper version because you're already on 4.6. So you do have to be a little bit careful with your installation order, uh, like you've always had to be in the past. Like, this makes perfect sense. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is by design. The the uh, the in- installers are doing the right thing, and they're, they're stopping you from uh, doing bad things. So... Uh, go ahead and lay down SharePoint first on, on those dev boxes and then go ahead and add your uh, Visual Studio 2015 and the latest and greatest version of the .NET framework and you'll be just fine. Uh, nothing will break along the way doing it that way and everything presents itself in the right order. Well, I mean, that's encouraging that folks realize that. I think uh, <clears throat> we've seen issues like that with SharePoint patches for like cumulative updates too, though. Uh, in the past, I don't quite remember which patch it was, but it was something to the effect of if you installed the CU before Service Pack, I think this was 2010, 
uh, Service Pack 1, when it came out, there was a CU that came out at the same time. And if you installed the CU before you installed the Service Pack, things were grand and marvelous. But if you installed it in the opposite order, uh, you couldn't actually install the, the Cumulot update because the Service Pack patch level was greater than that of the Cumulot update. So it's kind of one of those, oh, crap. Yep, yep. So not a big deal for this one. Uh, uh, our buddy Brian Jacket, uh, PFE, he wrote up a quick article on this that sums it up nicely. Cool. And, and gives everybody an update. So uh, you mentioned SharePoint 2010. Are you still using that anyplace? Uh, I prefer SharePoint 2007, personally. It was rock solid. It was. And you could do those MCMS upgrades, and oh, those were the glorious days. UPS just worked. Yeah, before it was even called a UPS, absolutely. Pre-service application architecture stuff. Uh, so if anybody out there is using that, uh, they should probably make note that SharePoint 2010 mainstream support is going to end on October 13th of this year. Kind of sad. Uh, SharePoint 2013 is slated for sometime in 2018, I believe. Yeah, 2017 or 2018. It's 2018 now. I have to go look out at the uh, product lifecycle thing, and that site is not pretty. So they've gotten the lifecycle site, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, has all the different life cycles for all the different products and explains kind of how the licensing works, mainstream support, extended support. Uh, the key here is pretty much usually it says, you know, if a service pack comes out, you have 12 months after that service pack comes out. Um, SharePoint, being an on-prem server, uh, is one of those great products that has extended support through, I think it's 2023. It's like a decade after it comes out. But yep. again, that, yep. and, that requires and that speaks you to, actually, to a lot of the InfoPath things and things like that. Yeah, that, that requires you to go out and actually pay for uh, the product with extended support, not just mainstream support. Yeah, so uh, it's a good point, right? We want to make that distinction between the uh, the two of those. So as of right now, mainstream support for SharePoint Server 2013 is going to end in uh, April 10th, 2018. Yeah, I, I was looking at that earlier, like two days ago, and I didn't realize, uh, well, I, was, I was reading it and... My eyes were just acting a little goofy, and I was reading it as saying that uh, SharePoint 2013 was no longer in support, um, but then glanced down and went, oh, look, it actually says 2018. Never mind. Just kidding. Um, so make certain that you focus your eyes, put your glasses on, and have your coffee before you look at the Lifecycle website. Yeah, it's a lot of effort well, just to figure out when our products are going to become useless to us. Yeah, but I mean... At least with Windows 10, they'll never be useless as long as we have an internet connection. Woohoo! Windows as a service. I'll just call it Windows Chromebook. It's coming on down the pipe. Mm, NS5s, get ready to rock. <laughs> That's a movie reference. Yeah, I was, I was going to throw out something about Johnny Five being alive, but that might be lost on our audience. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's a shame. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see what they come back with it uh, on that. Uh, so let's see. What are we talking about? Uh, so you mentioned uh, Windows 10 yet again. So 
there's a couple neat little articles that came out around that as, as things are um, popping out. So uh, one interesting thing is there is a uh, special support tool that you can go download to hide individual updates since they took that ability out of the settings app. And uh, that becomes key if you are installing Windows 10 on a device that maybe has some drivers that haven't been updated yet or things that you don't want to hit. Uh, so I know Dell has been out on their support pages and saying, please, for the love of everything, please don't install Windows 10 on these devices because we know they're not ready for them. Uh, and I, I think Lenovo has been doing that a little bit too. So if you go down that path of saying, hey, I'm still going to install Windows 10 on this and I think it's going to be okay, but maybe there's a display driver like an NVIDIA or an AMD driver that you know is not going to work with it, uh, you're going to have the ability to run that little tool and hide those updates and maybe restore them back later when uh, it's been a couple weeks and they're ready for prime time. So I think I remember seeing something about the... It's either the Surface Pro or the Surface Pro 3 for a while. Basically, they said do not load the Windows 10 beta bits or insider preview bits on there just because they were still working on some of the driver pieces. Uh, well, I mean, for the most part, the Surface I have done pretty good in this update. They're all ready to go, and things like uh, they get the new gestures, like the precision precision touchpad stuff is is all in there yeah and should i tell people how many fingers you're holding up with your gestures four man <laughs> uh so, so that, that stuff's all ready to go and it's baked in this is really more around um you know if you go with uh you know your lenovo x1 carbon and it has a weird graphics thing that you want to uh, make sure you're not going to get bit by that bug then uh, go ahead and, and, and leave it off because, you know, they're not vendor certified and things like that. Um, so if you do have one of those uh, precision touchpads, you can do uh, a lot of the new gestures support that's within Windows. So uh, swiping up with three fingers and swiping down with three fingers. They've got some uh, kind of OS uh, X-ish uh, support in there uh, for swinging through uh, applications and desktops and minimizing and maximizing and things like that. Uh, and then The Verge had a nice handy list of Windows 10 keyboard shortcuts for going through and doing a lot of the standard things that you could do in Windows 8, Windows 8.1, you know, stacking windows and pushing them into quadrants and things like that. Um, but it also covers the new keyboard shortcuts for creating things like virtual desktops. Huh, that was The Verge? Yes. Interesting. I'll have to check that one out uh, later tonight or sometime this weekend. Yes. See, now here's the problem. That's in the show notes. If you read the notes while we were going, we, we would have all of this stuff figured out and ready to go. You know, I can't do that. I have to play your part. I know. I know. All sorts of problems along the way. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Um... So we got this uh, thing that's been in here for a while. Uh, so Microsoft came out with this uh, thing called the Office 365 File Extensibility Handler. Um, I didn't really find it to be all that useful, personally. 
Well, you're the one who put this in here. Yeah, I know. If it's but, not useful, why are we talking about it? Well, so essentially one of the things they added with the Office Web Apps was the ability to use the OS servers to pull in documents and then view them through that handler, um, the OA handler, or the WAC server as we so lovingly call it. Uh, they finally decided, hey, we should probably put together some documentation. Well, they, they had documentation. Uh, we should probably put something together that actually shows how to use this in like an example or a pattern in practice maybe. Uh, so they put a lab out there, um, hands-on lab, and I've got my hands on it right now, um, that effectively walks you through how to set up a file handler extension. Uh, so you can build your own file viewers um, with inside of Office 365. So I thought it was kind of neat. I don't see too much use for it for most organizations uh, unless you have developers that you want to throw at a custom file type that you have like a on-prem uh, document viewer that is completely native to your organization. Uh, but otherwise, uh, kind of one of those neat, I guess they had someone write this up for fun. Um, they do have it all stored in GitHub, surprisingly, but I guess, you know, go where the people are. Uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I think maybe I'm seeing some more creative uses for this than than you are, so there's definitely the uh, the custom file thing, uh, and, you, you know, even the thing that they've got in this hands-on lab to pull up something simple like an RSS feed uh, could be kind of neat in and of itself if you imagine you know there's some images or something embedded in those feeds maybe that could uh, that could be pretty cool uh, the other nice thing about this one is it's one of the examples that walks through uh, the Owen uh, flow so uh, you know lots of the things uh, they walk through Azure AD and the OAuth uh, flows that go on there uh, and this is one of the ones that happens to use Owen, which is another one of those authentication frameworks. So if people are looking for an example of that, this might be a good one to use. Point Hogue. Yeah, you know. Um, did you see what Isaac Stith was writing about? So this was an article he published, I guess, what, two weeks ago? Somewhere thereabouts? So he's been taking a look at the migration APIs. So, uh, you know, for anybody who's been paying attention to the updates that came out of Ignite and uh, some of the updates from the Office 365 product group, they announced some new high throughput uh, ingestion engine API-ish stuff uh, that's uh, formerly referred to as the high-speed migration API, uh, where people and customers are going to be able to upload contents to Azure storage accounts and based on some predefined manifests and things like that, take those contents and push them over to an Office 365 tenant, uh, more specifically a SharePoint online tenant. Uh, so, so that's pretty cool. So um, some of the migration vendors have been writing about this, you know, a little bit around their plans to go ahead and uh, integrate this into their products. And uh, Microsoft has some semi-decent pages up on TechNet, uh, MSDN, things like that, about uh, what these APIs are, what they do, and some of the PowerShell and things like that behind them. And so Isaac's been going out and doing some practical application and testing of that. So one of the latest things that he's done 
is he wanted to get some measurements and, and throughput around some larger data sets. So it's pretty easy to, you know, fire off a, a gig of documents and um, kind of let it churn away. But mm, uh, he wanted to do something with some larger files and uh, a little bit more data. So he had downloaded a bunch of the Ignite videos and he had close to 300 gigs of those and he wanted to go ahead and push them up to an Office 365 tenant just in a uh, document library and, and see what that would do. So, uh, you know, he walks through building the package and, and, and the manifest and doing all those kind of things and moving things across and actually got some really good numbers out of it. So if anybody's ever done a migration to Office 365 and maybe they've been throttled back or something like that, it can be a little painful to get larger data sets up there. Uh, so based on what was, he was saying, uh, you can. He got down to where a, you know, taking his numbers and running things through. Uh, he says, you know, if you extrapolate his information, uh, a single-threaded uh, migration process, uh, you could migrate a terabyte of data in under six days. So that's pretty good for something that's just pushing across the wire and not walking, you know, a, a hard drive someplace, which you still can't do for SharePoint Online. Uh, so, you know, there's a couple things to note about the way he did his testing, which, uh, you know, might have improved it. He was, uh, you know, made sure that he was in uh, Azure data centers near his tenancies and things like that. So, uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but uh, terabyte in six days, pretty good. Getting way better. So... We extrapolate that to what we talked about last week with Google giving away a petabyte of data. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to push push here, would you? You'd get to 366 terabytes, somewhere thereabouts. But, uh, wait, 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 what, what do you call this? What's, what's your term? Bananas and battleships? Yeah. Okay, so back on Oranges point, and though. mangoes? Back on point, though. <laughs> um, I'm curious what... Uh, what his machine is, because he has a line item in here where he's talking about it, uh, 300 gigabytes of data, but he doesn't mention, I guess he has the line item in here of packaging of 294 gigabytes of data, it took about five minutes. Uh, so he was using a VM in Azure. He was. Yeah. Uh, uh, but so forget packaging and things like that, because those are always going to be variable, right? Like network latency and everything else. Really, the number that you're interested in from a, a migration standpoint on this side is how quick can we push out of the controlled environment, which is an Azure storage account, over to a SharePoint Online tenant. Yep. So there, there's all sorts of things that you're going to be able to play around with on the front end of that, as far as how am I going to suck all my data out and you know put it on a hard drive someplace or a disk someplace that I can do some... Uh, manipulation to it to build out the manifests and everything else and uh, yes you're going to need some processing power and some other things so um, Azure might be a good place for that maybe you're totally on-prem and you have some beefy boxes and, and other things I know uh, it doesn't always go that way though um, I'm sure you've gone into places where you sit down with a client and you say all right let's spin up the migration machines and they pull out some laptops from 1996 and they say here use these and then you try and explain that these are CPU and memory bound processes, and uh, they come back and just look at you cross-eyed. 
But it's a computer, Scott. It is. It, it, it is a computer. They, they got that part right. Yeah. Um, they, they're very personal, personal computers that can't do much. Um, so, so, yeah, you're, uh, you, you have dependencies on the resources that are available to you, whether that's CPU, bandwidth, uh, your own time to put things together. But um, just another kind of uh, piece of data for people to have a look at. So I don't know if he's published it, but uh, Tamir Auerbach at uh, SharePoint Saturday DC back in June did a talk on this as well. And he also had some pretty interesting information about uh, some of the enhancements that you get using the APIs that they've put out there. Um, Probably the most interesting or silliest thing to me is it uses basically the same infrastructure uh, that they used for content deployment. Yep, content management packages. Yeah, which they deprecated about a year and a half ago. (laughs) So they deprecated them to go work on them somewhere to then bring them back. Yeah, you you know, stuff happens. Um, You you know, they're they're kind of all over the place with some of this stuff. Uh, You know, I've been hearing more questions from people about things like uh, the old CMPs and the content management packages. Um, I had somebody at SharePoint Saturday New York over the weekend here that we were just at um, asking about things like uh, CMS or or CMIS, which is the Content Management uh, Interoperability uh, Service, which you do have some of those capabilities in on-premises, and they were asking about Office 365. uh, And I I said off the cuff, you know, I I don't think any of that stuff exists up there. That's purely in on-premises uh, uh, construct as of right now. I don't know if you know anything about that. Nope. Excellent. Let's move on. So we'll put that in the show notes for next year. Um, joy. Uh, so something else we have in the show notes. This is about a month old at this point, but uh, Microsoft has released Azure Usage APIs. Uh, it's a REST endpoint that you can go hit to pull the usage information that you can usually go and download from either your EA portal or from account.microsoft.com. If you're hitting this endpoint, you'll be basically going against your EA portal, so you can select the subscriptions from there as you wish. Uh, Pretty handy, especially if you want to build like a dashboard out of this for usage within Uh, Office 365 SharePoint site through a custom app that you've developed and deploy that probably runs on top of Azure. Or if you want to go and build this uh, into just, you know, some sort of like dynamic Excel spreadsheet that reaches out and pulls the data for you on a regular basis that gets displayed on someone's desktop. Um, Pretty handy. I don't think it's going to be too useful for me in the near near term just because I don't think that uh, in my case, I'm going to be using these too often. But uh, they did mention also two partners that they've been working with, um, Cloudin and Cloud Cruiser, um, which have some of these different APIs baked into them in the sense that they have different methods and whatnot that reach out to then build the dashboards inside their specific products. So if you're already using something like Cloudin or Cloud Cruiser to help out with your billing and information inside of uh, Azure or other cloud provider, uh, now you can actually point it at your friendly Azure neighborhood REST API to pull the information in more dynamically. 
Yeah. So, uh, so these are billing APIs. Yes, billing uh, APIs. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you said they were usage APIs. And I was going to yell at my, you for not having something in the show notes again. Uh, <laughs> all right. So th- these are actually really cool. So if you've ever seen solutions in AWS around being able to do uh, forecasting and tracking around your solution spend. So I don't know if you've ever seen stuff from companies like CloudAbility. Yeah. Yep. So think of the things that CloudAbility does and being able to leverage tooling like that over in Azure. Mm. And that, and now that becomes pretty cool uh, because really you're talking about being able to do uh, not only uh, legacy trending over what you're costing and where you were, uh, but based on having a, a large enough data set, uh, if you've got a kind of semi-predictable application or you know it has quarterly runs or things like that uh, you should be able to do some pretty accurate forecasting as well Uh, so having data always goes a long way towards making the implementers of these technologies or really the consumers of them uh, it gives a bunch of warm fuzzies along the way right to be able to say um, we can start to go from that point where we can say uh, we think that a solution is going to cost you uh, $2,000 a month, and maybe one month it costs 1500 and the next month it costs 2500 and really it averaged out to 2000 and maybe where we can start to get some actionable data out of there and, and get much better numbers around things. I wonder if you could take uh, data from this, pipe it into machine learning, and let it do experiments to see like what your optimal... Cost is, uh, I, yeah. I mean, the data is yours to do anything you want with, right? Yeah. So, I'm just so, so if, you, if you pull things. it out and, and you come up with a model for it, sure. Um, you know, I don't know that you need ML to do predictive analysis on things like IaaS spend. It's, oh. not, it's not quite like watching, you know, thousands of people click around in a shopping cart or things like that. Uh, and it tends to be a little more predictable. So uh, definitely a data set you can do something with, right? Take it and it, it might be more suitable for uh, one of those kind of HD Insider Hadoop offerings or something like that. Or throw it into Power BI and make it all pretty. Or better, oh well, yeah, you could do that. But you could also have the infinite loop where you tell ML to look at itself and continually analyze. <laughs> We're not trying to build Skynet here. We're just trying to figure out how much to spend on our VMs. I was just thinking if you want to try and break it, you could tell it to analyze itself, and then eventually it would come up with a perfect answer. Yeah. Uh, what's the answer? 42, right? Yep. All right. We so, just don't know what the question is? Yeah. It's another reference for those uh, keeping track. Um, what else we got? Uh, Azure Government in- Overview. So... For those tracking at home, Azure Government is out there alive and breathing. Um, they released a white paper uh, back on June 8th that has the overview of all the services that are available. Uh, so if you are a federal, state, local government uh, organization and you're curious about what this Azure Government thing is and you've gone to azure.com uh, slash gov, I think is what it is, something like that. Um, you can read up on it there, but also this white paper has kind of all the different details and whatnot. So show note link, um, it's from the download center. That's how we came upon it. It wasn't something that, uh, we found out on our own. It was just, Hey, look, it's in the download center off that RSS feed that we follow. Yeah. You always feel like you have to couch that stuff. I I don't feel like I do as much as you. So, 
this is kind of handy for folks that don't play around with Azure government, right? Citation required. <laughs> yeah. of, of course. Yeah. Uh, we want to make sure that we're... Uh, uh, what's, what, what's the standard when you're trying to do your citations for your papers? I don't know. Whatever. Oxford comma. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, you know, so uh, Azure government can be a thoroughly uh, frustrating affair for folks that are new to it, right? It doesn't offer all the same things that uh, the regular consumer versions of Azure offers, um, whether that's, uh, you know, differences in maybe the way IaaS VMs and images are deployed or, um, you know, down to things uh, like Azure government doesn't have ARM. <laughs> yep, so, so no, no Azure resource manager over there. So it's interesting that we have this way forward and Azure government is uh, lagging. Uh, lagging, that, that, that'd be a good word to, to put behind it. Uh, it's it's falling behind a little bit behind its uh, older consumer brother. So um, just another resource for those that are maybe interested in that or uh, getting a little frustrated by it. I uh, I think the the white paper does a good job though of spelling out the services, kind of like the service description for Office three sixty five. So it lets you know what's there, and if you are so inclined to use it, go for it. Yeah. Um, and if you don't see it there, it's not there. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 All right. So why don't we talk about one more thing and then we'll go ahead and wrap things up here. So we have one more Azure thing, right? Uh, so out on the Azure blog, they had, uh, they had an article about a way to do some, uh, VM recovery. So, uh, basically they were looking at, using Azure Site Recovery, uh, lovingly referred to as ASR, uh, to be able to do really that kind of site failover. So it's it's that offering within Azure. And one of the limitations of that has been uh, we have this disk size limit over on the Azure side, right? Where you can't have a VHD that's bigger than a terabyte. So mm, what do you do if you have a... Uh, VM on-premises where it maybe has a data disk attached to it, say like a SQL server or something, uh, that has a, a four terabyte disk. Uh, that disk would have been ineligible for recovery and that makes it kind of hard to recover something like a machine that uh, probably has an application which relies on that disk being there for some reason. Uh, so one of the guys went out and uh, one of the program managers uh, wrote up this great article on uh, really how we can be more creative with the cloud and uh, trying to think of some good ways to leverage that service within the uh, technical limitations of Azure, right? Um, so in this case, it was saying, hey, if you have that larger disk on-premises, uh, you can get to that same state in the cloud with something like storage spaces, so rather than having one single disk that is four terabytes, what if you had four one terabyte disks and combine those in a pool? And then those four individual disks are what could be recovered over to Azure uh, because Azure understands storage spaces and 
uh, you can make do do with those and and bring your application back up the way that you expect it to do and comes back up in a nice atomic state and uh, ready to go. So uh, thought we you know throw that one out there for folks as um, you know even if you're not impressed by the uh, the, the functionality. Uh, it's kind of a good lesson in that there's uh, always workarounds and other ways to think about implementing some of these solutions in the cloud. True. Uh, I, I think in this case, like you said, thinking outside the box, um, it's it's clever that they have this capability out there. Um, it's more kind of funny to me that uh, people haven't realized you could potentially do this, maybe. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I don't see many organizations leveraging things like storage spaces on-premises. Uh, you know, a lot of the organizations I work with are in more traditional uh, SAN infrastructures, and they're just kind of provisioning disks and uh, presenting disks to servers. You know, they're, they're, they're not really uh, relying on software-defined disks like storage spaces. It's coming off a piece of hardware in a lot of the implementations that I do. So, uh, you know, it's often something that, you know, as a consultant, uh, we can go back to clients with and we can say, hey, did you know you can do this on the other side? Um, Because, you know, somebody who's playing around with a NetApp or an EMC device or something else I think they spend so much of their time in those because quite often if we're talking to enterprise SAM, it is supporting enterprise data and enterprise services and it is mission critical that that thing be up and doing what it needs to do. Uh, so you know, storage engineers tend to be pretty touchy and, and rightfully so because they kind of are responsible for you know what's going to happen with that data. So. Uh, you know, I, I can't fault them for not recognizing the stuff's on the other side, but uh, hopefully, you know, like you said, this stuff gets out a little bit more and uh, folks can figure out some of the native capabilities that are there. Yeah, I tend to see storage spaces pop up more often than not on private cloud implementations. Yeah, where... you'll, you'll, you'll see them quite a bit with like VMM and things like that. Yeah, and, where, folks and running just, around. where folks don't realize, well, where folks are trying to save money by not buying the NetApp or the EMC or whatever file handler, so they just use the native out-of-the-box storage handler or storage spaces. Um, plus, I think a lot of folks like that because they can front that in front of JBOD, so just a bunch of disk. Um, and yes, you and I both care about IOPS, but if you for some reason are buying fifteen, you know, thousand K RPM disks and throwing them into a primordial disk and then adding them to a storage space and allocating it. If that is meeting your IOP SLA <laughs> delivery, more power to you. But I think most organizations for, like you said, enterprise stuff, they're probably using some sort of NetApp or EMC to do their storage handling for provisioning. Yeah, you, you, well, and you still can't do some magical things, you know. Um, you know, you mentioned IOPS, so we're still IOPS bound in uh, Azure on disks. Uh, you know, we have to choose whether we're using that premium storage offering or, uh, you know, the the basic or the general. And do we want 300 IOPS? Do we want 500? Do we want, uh, you know, 1,000, whatever the number happens to be today? Um, it's definitely not always like playing with, you know, hardware SAM where you can have something like an equal logic and just 
oh look, I have 100,000 IOPS in this array, let me slam a second array in, and magically I have doubled my IOPS, <laughs> you know, based on the way the, the vendor calculation and everything works on the back end. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, like I said, a, a lesson in, uh, let's, let's be creative and think outside the box a little bit. Magic. Magic. Unicorns and stuff. Or magical mm-hmm. snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs>